I have reached this age in life when people are starting to ask me, Philip, when are you going to retire? And honestly, I don't know how to interpret that question. When I hear that, I'm asking myself, do they think that I am past the use-by date? Yeah. Whenever Denise pulls something out of the refrigerator in the produce section, she will uh, run that produce by two tests. She'll run it by the date test, what's the date on the item itself, but then she'll run the most conclusive test of all, and that is Denise's smell test. It doesn't matter what the date is, if it doesn't smell good to her, we throw it away. We get rid of it in some form or fashion. So when I hear the question, uh, when are you going to retire, I just wonder, how do I smell? <laughs> yeah, and I think Denise will tell me. I don't think people mean anything negative by that question. I really just think that they're interested and, uh, in me personally about what life is going to look like in the next chapter. And I think they're also just interested in, you know, what's going to be at the venues when that retirement comes. And so we're in this series in which we're asking what's important. And you'll see some of those things that we've talked about thus far here on my left on the wall. And you saw them in the uh, little video a moment ago. But what we're talking about today is transitions. Prepare to leave a legacy. When the time comes for me to retire and I have reached that use-by date, and I really do hope I know that use-by date before you know that use-by date, uh, you know, as far as the venues is concerned, uh, the baton will be passed to Chris, whom you just saw a moment ago, introduce our song. But in the meantime, we're talking today about... Whenever that time comes that I retire and that somebody else leads this really good group of people, uh, what I'm wanting to think about today is not just myself personally, but really what the community called the venues is going to leave this community. And that's what we're calling a legacy. Sometimes when we think about the word legacy, we think about uh, when, when Dad died, he left... Uh, myself and my two sisters, an inheritance. Some of the things that he had saved up when we think in terms of money and property and those kinds of things. I'm wearing a sport coat today that belonged to my dad. Daddy bought in 1972. And uh, so it's, I don't know if it's in style or not, but who the hell cares? <laughs> and uh, it, it's a legacy and that's what it's about. But sometimes we think about a legacy being money. Proverbs says, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the wealth of the sinner is laid up for the just. Yeah. A good man will leave money, an inheritance to his kids. But if you're a sinner, uh, your kids aren't going to get it. That inheritance is only going to go to those people who practice justice. So when we think about a legacy, we often think so much is just about inheritance. But a legacy is a lot more, isn't it? A legacy is making a lasting impact that goes beyond your particular lifetime. Back in 430 BCE, this guy, Pericles, who was called the, uh, the first citizen of Athens, said, what you leave behind is not what is engraved in stone monuments, but what is woven into the lives of others. So I'm having to think, and I've been thinking about this for a long time, 
what threads do I want to weave into people's lives? And there are so many. I only have time today to mention three of those. Uh, what thread I want to weave into your life, into the lives of others, is a thread of a reframed religion. Not the religion with which I was raised, but a reframed religion. Uh, I've got to be honest, I have become in my life a little anti-religious, but as I look at that, I think I've always been a little anti-religious. My dad had in his library this book, called How to Be a Christian Without Being Religious. And I remember reading that in high school. So I've always had a tendency about me to be anti-religious and anti-system and to really rebel against organized religion as it uh, was presented to me. And so what I'm wanting to do is reframe that for people. Uh, because what I'm discovering, and maybe you are too, that the religion of Christianity, as opposed to the way of Jesus, the religion of Christianity, as opposed to Christianity, as we see in the life of Jesus, has really been messed up. As an organization and as a system, Christianity has really messed up. In Alexandria, Egypt, back in 415 uh, CE, about 35 years after Christianity became the state religion of the Roman Empire by edict of Emperor Theodosius, a Christian mob attacked a woman. They stripped her. They dragged her through the streets to a church where they beat her and set her on fire. The woman is a, here's a painting of her from around 1867. The woman's name was Hypatia. She was an accomplished mathematician, astronomer, philosopher. She was murdered by Christians because her ideas, some of them, contradicted their ideas. While Christian nationalists of that day, Christianity became the state religion and it became a system. Well, the church didn't like this lady at all because their teaching was, and sometimes it still is today, that the only place you can get religious, spiritual instruction, really the only way you can get instruction of any type, uh, morality, political, whatever, is through us, the pastors, the priests, the church. We are your source of information. So she really went against the grain of Christianity. The man who orchestrated her murder was a saint. He was actually declared a saint. His name is Cyril of Alexandria. Now, this guy's important in Christian doctrine because he formulated some doctrinal positions that are still in vogue today. One of those is that Jesus was 100% human and 100% divine. And that is held by many Orthodox Christians today. But this guy was just a jerk. He was the mean, mean, mean person. He brought and replaced him with something else. I see that organized religion has promoted discrimination and violence throughout history. Religious beliefs have been the justification for uh, discrimination and violence against individuals who were different, who were marginalized, or who were considered to be.
because you can't trust yourself. That's why, that's why God gave me to you. Just, uh, yeah, we were on the front lines opposing the Equal Rights Amendment. And I'm, I'm afraid that if we would have been around in the 20s, that we would have been opposed to the women's right to vote. And uh, just women in leadership and everything else, we were so opposed to. And uh, the church has been guilty of, instead of being on the front end of social reform and justice movements, the church has thrown up a roadblock after roadblock after roadblock of social reform. The church has opposed uh, racial equality, uh, gender equality, and it's still guilty of doing that in so many forms today. So what I want to do is I want to make us a new garment uh, with some new thread, and I want us to kind of redo religion. Religion has been defined, defined as, as a Latin uh, religare to bind together. So in its very core, in its very essence, if you peel out, peel away all the organizational stuff of religion, at its very heart, when you get down to the, to the chocolate center on the out inside of the Tootsie Roll Pop, what you see in there is something that binds people together. But somehow, organized religion has done the opposite, and it has divided and separated people. The idea that I want to leave with you. And you can honestly take my idea or leave my idea. And you may want to burn my idea. It may not fit with your idea. But my idea that I want to leave with you that I've not always held, but it's the idea that could it be that you were already connected to the divine? That your connection to the divine is reality. Now that's not what I was taught, and that's maybe not what you were taught. I was taught that I was born separated from God. And through indoctrination, I taught that myself and believed that myself. But could it be that Genesis chapter 1 comes before Genesis chapter 2? And in Genesis chapter 1, in that Hebrew telling of the story to try to understand the beginning of creation, there's a sense that humanity is an expression of God himself or God herself in an expression of love. And that this creator, whom we call God, Elohim in the Hebrew, created humanity in, in his, in her image. We are, instead of being separate from God, we are part of God. We belong to God. Made in God and made in love's image. Now, growing up in church, I was always taught of the unconditional love of God. And then I thought, well, this doesn't fit. The unconditional love of God, God loves me unconditionally. But then God says to me, according to this church's teaching, God loves you unconditionally. But if you don't accept that love, then God is going to punish you for eternity. He's going to burn you through eternity. But God loves you unconditionally. Well, that sounds like a condition, a pretty big condition. God really sounds like a 
like a controlling boyfriend, telling his or her girlfriend or boyfriend that I love you so much, but if you don't love me back, I'm going to stalk you. I'm going to hurt you. I'm going to punish you. That's not love. That's control. So what I am discovering is how in the world can we enjoy the love of God if so many conditions are attached to that love? It's exhausting. And I'm thinking that's maybe what Jesus is referring to when he says, recorded by Matthew, to all the people who were being burdened by a religion, come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest in your souls. I will not burden you. You will not suffer under this, these rules and regulations. But if you follow me, you will find a gentle and humble, not a power-hungry, narcissistic leader. He waits for you to serve them, but I will serve you. I'm really not too cozy about the old-time religion. The old-time religion heaped upon us guilt and fear. The old-time religion is kind of seen in that, it's a classic gospel song. We sang it all the time, and maybe you all sang it in your tradition too. Amazing Grace, it's a powerful song, isn't it? Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. Then it says this, that saved a wretch like me a wretch like me that's old time religion telling us every time we sing that song you are a wretch I would love to sew the thread of a new religion that doesn't say you are a wretch that you are a deplorable but that you are valuable you are good that you are loved that you are created in God's image and that the creator herself pronounced you as very, very good. Does that mean you don't make bad choices? Not at all. I make bad choices all the time. But I make bad choices not because I'm bad. I make bad choices for so many different reasons, but not because my core is bad. So my goal is to leave you with a sense of who you are in your own person as someone good and someone valuable. A second piece of thread that I want to weave through us is this. I want to give all of us a new way of seeing. One of my favorite writers and thinkers is Ram Dass, a PhD. And don't get freaked out about Ram Dass. Uh, he was at Harvard, and he did some studies on the power of, uh, of LSD to connect us with a, another world, and I've never done LSD. Uh, I don't plan on doing LSD, but the people that I've talked to who have done LSD say that it does present to a person a sense of wholeness, of oneness, of peace with this universe. And I'm wondering if that's really what God wants us to do. And I've talked to so many people who, who really do the practice of meditation and contemplation well, that that is the same thing that they experience. And that's what I'm wanting in my life. And Ram Dass says, if you see the divine in each other, it changes 
everything. This is Vanilla, a chimp who was born and lived in a lab for 28 years. Her home was a cage. It was suspended from a ceiling like a bird cage. And Vanilla, for 28 years, never saw the light of day. Vanilla, the last June 2023, Vanilla was rescued along with six other chimps. And when she was taken to her new home, she saw the sky for the first time in her life. In her excitement, she gave Dwight, the chimp behind her, up. Being set free, Vanilla was able to see and I really do think, and I propose to you, that when we are set free from a religion of guilt and fear, a religion that says we're better, our group is better than other groups, when we are set free from that disconnection from other people, I think we're able to see. And we're able to see God in all things. So when that Lady pulled out in front of me and I clipped her bumper. Well, God was there. <laughs> I was able to see God in all things. And when it's been four weeks and I still haven't heard from the insurance adjuster, God is absent. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, God's still there. Yeah, I think this new vision, this new way of seeing that I'm trying to develop sees the whole world as a sacred temple. And if that's true, then I'm able to see even my enemies. As sacred. Maybe they aren't doing sacred things, but they are in their essence sacred. Why is who they are been covered up by all of this pain and fear and hate and prejudice? And there are all kinds of reasons for that, but in their core, they're not that way. So if this is true, what I'm trying to experience, then my enemies are sacred. And I believe that the, the ability to love my enemy is really the true test of being able to see. And that's a legacy I'd like to leave. A third le legacy is very simple, to be kind. We're living in a culture and a climate in which people are just mean. And we have leaders who are mean, and leaders have followers. And when our leaders are mean, then our followers are mean. And it just grows, and there's a ripple effect. And being mean seems to be in vogue today. My dad delivered his last sermon when he was 89 years old, sitting in a wheelchair in the little uh, outside area of the hospice facility in Little Rock. And uh, they put it on Facebook, and... He could hardly breathe through that sermon. But the one thing that he uh, closed with that he wanted everybody to clearly hear 
and understand was this statement. I wish I had been more kind. 89 years of living, 69, 70 years of pastoring, and of all the things that he would want people to hear and the lessons that he would want people to learn is just be kind. Paul writes as one of the characteristics of love, that love is kind. He writes to the Ephesians, be kind to one another. Be soft in your heart toward each other. And then he says, if we really live by the Spirit, then we will express that fruit of kindness. Now, there's a theme here of kindness. I mentioned Amazing Grace a moment ago. There was another song we sang all the time in the Baptist church that I really did like. And uh, one of the lines was, in loving kindness, Jesus came. In loving kindness, Jesus came. And we would sing that song in church, in loving kindness. And then we would sometimes hear sermons about hating this group and not loving this group and not caring for that group. In loving kindness, Jesus came, but then the troops would be rallied to go fight against these different groups. But Jesus, the hymn said, came in love. And I began to feel we're not coming in love and we're not going in love and kindness. The Hebrew prophet Micah says, Hey, he has told you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. There are just a lot of mean and rude people walking around. The thing is, it doesn't have to be that way. We don't have to add to that. We've heard the phrase, kill them with kindness. Mm, sounds a little harsh, maybe. It, it kind of makes it sound like we're being kind to you because we don't like you. We want you dead. <laughs> so we're going to kill you with kindness. How about sprinkle them with kindness? We just get a little cinnamon shaker and just sprinkle a little kindness everywhere. Everywhere we go. I did a, a funeral last Sunday, as I mentioned, and uh, this guy was a professor at MSU, and the uh, family went to the funeral home, and they said, uh, we want a preacher for this funeral who is a humanist and not religious. And so I've got the funeral home has my number on speed dial. <laughs> Whenever they get a family who wants a preacher who's not religious, but a humanist, which simply means I believe in the goodness of humanity. And uh, this man was not religious, but I listened to the things that family said, the things that friends said about him, and the quality that came out in his life was he was just a kind man. And I left that funeral service thinking, 
Why is it that I know so many people who claim to be Christians and they're just so mean? And then I hear the stories of this good man who did not claim to be a Christian and the legacy that he has left is a legacy of kindness. That's a head-scratcher to me. No one enjoys being made fun of, and we've all been made fun of at some point in our life, I'm sure. Social media, though, has intensified that ability. I saw a video on uh, Good Morning America about a librarian named Michael who has kind of gone viral. He gets so excited about encouraging people to read books and come to the library. But he was, it was recently revealed that he was uh, being harassed and bullied online. He didn't even know about it until somebody asked him how he was doing in the face of all that bullying. And once he found out that he was being bullied, he went online to address his bullies. Take a look at what he said. Some of the comments in this Twitter thread are some of the coolest things I've read in a very long time. Um, saying things about me like dude's a freak for real, um, making fun of my voice, my mannerisms, the way that I retell the wonderful library stories I encounter, um, and some other awful things I'm just not going to repeat because they don't need to be heard by anybody. I don't even honestly believe you should go see this Twitter thread. It's that awful. Um, I'm only saying this, and they've also, even also some people who came to my defense said things like, he's autistic, leave him alone. Um, he's autistic. I'm not autistic. There's nothing wrong with being autistic. I think autistic people are some of the coolest on the planet. I love conversations with my autistic library friends. I have so much library love for them. I look forward to conversations with them each time they visit the library. I am talking about this because I want people to remember that sometimes people have their worst day, they are really struggling in life, and sometimes what that results in is they say very mean, very cool things about other people, which is not okay. It's not okay to say mean, cruel things about people, but I hope you remember, as I'm trying to remember, that when people are really suffering, sometimes they resort to meanness, cruelty, because that's what they feel about themselves. Um, And I hope those people have a much better day tomorrow. I hope they experience kindness. I hope they experience joy. I hope they remember that they still belong at the library. I hope better days are ahead of them. I hope you are doing okay. Yes. Wow, this is fantastic. I want to be that way. Well, when the Chiefs played the the Bills last week, uh, I I read an article just a couple days ago that said the Chiefs just were not very warmly received by the Bills fans. And they said some awful things, according to this report, about uh, not just the Chiefs players, but the Chiefs family members as well. And so uh, Kelsey, our, our, our favorite person because of Taylor Swift these days, I didn't even know Kelsey played ball <laughs> until this year. No, I, I've... I've uh, I really do, and the chief follower. But uh, Kelsey gave a gesture of a, of a heart. And everybody thought he was giving that gesture to Taylor up in, this, up in the booth. But this is what he said. Now, I had to spread the love, baby. You always got to spread that love. He wasn't spreading the love to Taylor, but to the fans. Hmm. What he said was, use that phrase, what I was trying to do is kill the fans with kindness. 
Yeah. I just wanted, Kelsey said, to make sure they knew it wasn't mutual. I don't hate you guys like you hate us. It's all love, baby. I don't know what people will say about me when I'm gone. I don't know what people are saying about me now. I do know what people are saying about me now. <laughs> and I know what they're saying about you because you're part of the venues. But I really do believe that no one could say about me and no one could say about you, no one could say about this community that we do not love people. I think everyone who criticizes us and condemns us would also say, yeah, they love each other. And if I remember correctly, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you have love one one another. Once again, Charlie Brown and John Lennon get it right. <laughs> it really is all about love. Leon Fisher gave to me a few years ago. Leon Fisher was one of the first uh, gay individuals that I ever talked to about issues of acceptance and rejection and what churches were doing. And uh, he gave me this comic strip. Charlie Brown is talking to Snoopy, who's riding on his top of his uh, doghouse. I hear you're writing a book on theology. I hope you have a good title. And Snoopy says, I have the perfect title. And that title is, Has It Ever Occurred to You That You Might Be Wrong? <laughs> the truth is, everything I've told you this morning that I want to do, it could be wrong. It really could. Where I am today, though, is some of the things that I learned in my youth and that I taught as my young pastorhood, I believe today was wrong. And I want to continue to have that sense of test me and don't trust me. Just trust my heart that it's always acting out of a sense of love for myself, for you, for God, and for this community. And it's 11.02, and because I love you, I'm stopping. <laughs>